Among the severely disabled, there's this very real sense that we are unlovable, that no one would ever date us, that we are excluded from that race. It occurred to me that could be true, but is just letting that massive assumption go unchallenged really the most courageous thing to do? Welcome to The Impossible Man, the true story of how the inability to move allowed one person to trade his humanity for odds-defying superpowers, and how he clawed his way back. So welcome back to the penultimate episode of The Impossible Man. We have just this and one more episode left to follow. And as things turned out, it did end up being a second half of Act 2 and then Act 3 in the episode 4 and 5. Go figure. In this episode, John covers some really, really rough ground. If you remember at the end of the last episode, John said that he got to a point where he controlled everything but still didn't feel safe. In this episode, we're going to follow the aftermath that came from that. And then in the final episode, to air next week, we're going to close the story and just know that there's so much more when we finish writing the book and that this podcast series has been an overview of the highest level of the story and there's so much more depth to it. So without further ado, let's continue with The Impossible Man. All right, John looks like we're in the home stretch here. I kind of like that there's some structure to the show now. We know that it's got two more episodes. We know what the next two episodes are going to cover. And it feels like a satisfying story in in brief. I mean, not fleshed out. That's why people need to get the book. But does that feel about the same to you? Yeah, I think so. It's a good it's a good balance to give everyone a taste of of what's coming. You get all the low points and and some of the high points to come to. We left kind of off on a cliffhanger in episode two, but there was one thing that just occurred to me almost spontaneously while I was listening back to episode three. You know, I've known you for about a decade now. And I guess I didn't realize until I heard it on the show, I don't hear you laugh a lot. Like you're a serious guy, even with, you know, we've, we know each other reasonably well. So is that just my perception or are you kind of a, a serious dude and it takes a little bit to, to get you laughing? I'm a pretty serious dude. I would say that over the past two years since I went through therapy, I laugh more than I used to. With my nurses that are with me, I'm constantly joking. So they're laughing all day long. My girlfriend, too. Also, to like do a really big laugh, it takes a lot of muscle in your, in your diaphragm. And I don't have that. So even when I'm laughing so hard, tears are coming out of my eyes. Still not like a big booming laugh. It's pretty quiet. It made me think that this can't all be negative for you, that there's at least some stories in here that are amusing. And I, I hope it's cathartic. It is. One of the concepts from therapy is that if you ask a trauma specialist, like, when will I be able to talk about this without crying? But the answer is when you've shed all the tears. So reliving something and experiencing those emotions in some ways one theory I heard, which is very interesting, is that trauma is just emotion that you are resisting experiencing. And if you will experience it all, the trauma goes away. Well, I've, I feel like I've, I don't know, learned about that or experienced it or thought about it recently as well in, in a different context because, you know, knock on wood, 
I haven't personally had a lot of trauma, for which I'm really grateful. But the idea that negative emotion hurts because you're resisting it to some degree. I mean, obviously, there is a base level of, of, of stuff there, but it's, it's the resistance. It's the I don't want to feel that that tends to dog a lot of people. It's normal to have, quote unquote, negative emotions. But where you get into unhealthy territory is when you refuse to feel them. And that doesn't always mean verbalizing your emotions. The most emotionally healthy people I've seen, they feel the full range of emotions, but they fully experience and then release that emotion rapidly. So they're in a state of flow with their emotion, even if they're not speaking. And that's what I strive to do. Let me ask you about something else that came out after we pressed stop on the recording last time. And you said something like therapy, or maybe you can recontextualize this for me, that therapy will help you get rid of 95% of trauma. And this is obviously a little hyperbolic. It's not an exact figure. But that the 5% that remains is kind of yours forever. And I posited the idea that maybe that's grit in the oyster. Maybe that's the 5% that you need that makes you stronger. What do you think about that? I I think it's very possible. And I mean, I've had multiple trauma specialists to call me that, that some of it stays with you. Another metaphor I've heard is it's scar tissue, that you can completely heal the wound, but some scar tissue is going to remain. And that scar tissue actually makes that part of your body stronger than it was before. So I think there's some some truth to that too. To give people an idea of what we have in mind for these final two episodes, I'm seeing everything in acts. And I actually told my wife yesterday, I couldn't have written a better character and a better story. I wouldn't have made any different choices. Your life made all the right choices <laughs> as far as a satisfying story. You're welcome. Yes, thank you. Makes my job a little easier. So the first episode was the overview. The second episode was basically act one. The last episode was the first half of act two, right up to the midpoint. And this one looks like it's going to be the second half of act two. And then the final episode will be act three. So we stopped when we we said, and it was kind of on a cliffhanger, you needed to be safe. That was your goal. And your strategy was to control everything. And I said, hey, can you give me a sneak peek of what's you know going to happen going forward? I said, did you get to a point, just yes or no, did you get to a point where you learned that you could be safe without controlling everybody? And I said it in such a way that I was just assuming a yes. And you said, no. You said, I got, basically got to the point where I controlled everything, but I still wasn't safe. And so I'd like to begin with addressing that. And we're going to talk largely about where you began to kind of see that that strategy either wasn't working or wasn't effective. I guess that's the same thing to the point where at the end, I think you're going to have to drop it. Is that sound roughly correct? When you're the CEO of the company and you're the founder and you're the 100% shareholder, which by the way, 100% shareholder, major control symptom, I control everything. In my business, I am king. And so I got to a level there where I had a successful business where I was in complete control. And then I started to feel the sense of that it wasn't enough. One of my core values has always been to live courageously. And I realized that I was living that value in the world of business to some extent. I would argue I wasn't as far along as I thought I was. But I wasn't living that value in other parts of my life, like dating. I was a virgin until I was 
31 years old. And part of the reason why is among the severely disabled community, there's this very strong and very real sense that we are unlovable, that no one would ever date us, that we are excluded from that race. And my implicit answer was, that's true. Because anytime I was around girls, like they never communicated any sort of attraction my entire life. So my assumption was it was impossible for them to be attracted to me. It occurred to me that could be true, but is just letting that massive assumption go unchallenged really the most courageous thing to do? And the answer was no. So my original intent when I started dating was to actually test that assumption. And my hypothesis is that it was true and that I would prove it. And then I would never have to worry about it again. So your stepping into dating had less to do with wanting that particular adventure and more about this feeling that if you didn't, you weren't living according to your core value, one of your core values, which was to live courageously. Is that correct? Yes. Usually someone who is charging forward, wanting to control everybody, living sort of a domineering life in order to feel safe, usually that strategy comes with a certain degree of obliviousness. You need to feel bulletproof. You need to feel that you can kind of do no wrong, that you are smarter than everyone else, all that stuff. And realizing that you weren't living courageously feels like it flies in the face of that because it took an awareness that you weren't living courageously, which a lot of people in your position, you know, with that attitude wouldn't have seen. But then courage itself, like admitting to a lack of courage feels like a real assault to, I mean, I would assume that everything else you felt you were doing was courageous. So what was that journey like? Where it came from is being around lots of successful entrepreneurs in Austin, Texas, and realizing how incredibly self-aware they were. It's one of the hallmarks of a great entrepreneur is they know themselves for better and worse really well. And they're they're not oblivious to their flaws. And being around that kind of rubbed off on me. And I started being a lot more introspective at first in my business. And then later that kind of spread to my entire life. Because one of the core ideas of entrepreneurship is not only to build a successful business, but build a business that serves your life goals, whatever those goals are. And what that means is if your life goal is to be calm every day at five o'clock to spend time with your family, then running a $100 million company is probably not in the cards. On the other hand, maybe running a $1 million but highly profitable company is in the cards. So being aware of yourself and who you are and what you want, and there are really no wrong answers, but it it comes through self-awareness. And without that self-awareness, you cannot be a successful entrepreneur. You will actually drive yourself insane. Do you think that this was attempting to fill that toolbox even further than what we were talking about before? So you mentioned that when you watched all the movies, you weren't trying to learn to relate to people for its own sake because you were looking for connections. It was more that if you understood people better, you would be able to control them better. Was this the same sort of thing that the end goal was control and hence safety? There was starting to be a break in that. I would say it was just 
the opening fissures, yes, there was a lot of that. But there was also a sense of, once I got around other super successful entrepreneurs, and we're talking billionaires, my sense was they have something that I don't, and I want it. And that something wasn't money. It was actually a sense of being, a sense of peace, a sense of being the best version of themselves. And that desire to have that, that's kind of what sparked this journey. So I'm dying to get into the story of the dating, but I want to kind of sniff around the edges of it first as sort of an epiphenomenon of this change. So is there a cause and effect here? You mentioned in the last, or maybe it was in the first episode, you said that the realizations that maybe you needed a change in strategy began around the age of 31 when you started dating. Now you've just repeated 31. And you said that it was a lot of this was caused by being around other entrepreneurs and realizing that they were self-aware. And so you were looking to get what they had that made them successful, in which case included self-awareness. So was this cause and effect that the entrepreneurs were first, you moved to Austin, were exposed to more people, and then this realization came, you know what, I should face that big dating boondoggle that I have, or was it the same time, but unrelated, or was it the other way around? No, they were, it was in direct order. I moved to Austin, I was around them. I started to get more introspective and more self-aware around my business. And then that self-awareness started to spread to my entire life. What caused the change to Austin? Was that something that coincidentally gave you this realization or was this part of a larger thing? Before I moved to Austin, I was living all around Southern Florida, around Miami for about two and a half years. And I was very, very lonely, achingly, unbearably lonely. And it eventually occurred to me, it was because there were no entrepreneurs there at the time. Did you have entrepreneurs around you before that for you to have that realization? Before that, when I lived in Sacramento, which is near San Francisco, there were a lot of entrepreneurs there. And I really enjoyed that. I'd also started to attend conferences and made a lot of friends in person. And all of that gave me a sense of, I feel less alone when I'm with these people. So I made a list of all of my favorite entrepreneurs and their zip codes. And because I'm a nerd, put all of this in a spreadsheet, and then I plotted it on Google Maps. And Austin had the most dots. So I called my assistant and I said, I'm moving to Austin. Was there any awareness that some internal stuff might have been exacerbating that loneliness, or did it feel purely geographical? It felt purely geographical. It wasn't, but that's what I thought at the time. I'm guessing it went Sacramento, Mexico, Florida, Austin. Is that correct? I lived most of my life in North Carolina. Then in 2010, I moved to Mazatlan, Mexico. And then for the next three and a half years, I went back and forth between there and Sacramento. I did live in San Diego for a couple of months, but I was kind of in this phase of flitting around and trying all kinds of places to see where I liked living. And the idea was, you know, you have all these places people dream of living, San Diego, San Francisco, Miami, you know, I'm going to go live in all those places and see what I like. And so I lived on the beach for, I don't know, five years. I'm guessing that what you did in terms of not just moving, but moving a lot and you moved back and forth between Mazatlan and Sacramento. I'm guessing that's atypical for somebody with SMA or any other severe handicap. Did that occur to you? 
Yeah, I've never heard of it before. Did people question that or even people close to you in terms of the difficulty and stress on you? People close to me were very supportive. I have a very odd relationship with the rest of severely disabled adults. On the one hand, I have immense empathy for what they're going through. On the other hand, I have no sympathy whatsoever, even less than other people. And in general, my life is evidence that if they're holding themselves back because they're making certain excuses, my life is evidence that most of what they believe is bullshit. And so I make other disabled people intensely uncomfortable. How is it with people who aren't disabled? Because when I hear somebody say, I can't do X, honestly, you spring to mind a lot. I mean, everyone has excuses, by the way, including me. I tend to break through them more often than your average person, but everyone makes excuses. Every person has limiting beliefs. And I tend to have a very keen sense for when either my myself or when someone else is playing the victim. And I tend to call people out. I've even said to members of my team before, you are not a victim, don't act like one. And that's a startling thing for people to hear. On the other hand, I've had people who have very hard conversations with, which is typically some version of you are playing the victim, you need to stop. And I'm telling you right now, this is going to ruin your life if you continue. That is a conversation where people get angry, where they cry. I've had those conversations on sales calls. But on the other hand, I've had hundreds of people come back to me and said, changed my life. No one had ever told me that before. Speaking of limiting beliefs, let's circle back to the mindset of beginning dating. So you said that you did it because it occurred to you that this was an unaddressed belief and that you were failing to be courageous if you didn't face it, but that you expected it to turn out to be true. So can you delve a little bit deeper into the beginning of that journey? I applied the same strategy that worked for me on everything else. It was a game of incredible, intense volume, not only of study, but also dating. So I started by buying every book and every course on dating. I mean, we're talking 30 plus books and I don't know, 50 grand in courses. And I went through it just like I do everything else. It was the sort of the worst thing in the world is ignorance. Let me learn everything I can. And I learned a lot, but I still believed that I would be out of luck because even in the dating community, there is no one who has great relationships with women who is disabled. The closest was Sean, what was his last name? His name was Sean Stevenson. Yes. Sean recently passed away. I got to meet him before he died. He was inspiring to me. He was married. He was a doctorate level psychologist. And he was like two feet tall. Amazing person. But there there really wasn't anyone who, at, in my mind, was successful with women. So my, my initial thought was, I'm right, but let's find out for sure. So I started inviting every girl I came across, whether I was attracted to her or not, to a date. I, I had a dating coach, and his assignment was, you go ask for six phone numbers a day. I asked for like 30. My phone was eventually full of literally over 500 numbers. And I would take them to a coffee date. And some days I would literally go on dates for five or six hours 
I would have them back to back to where one girl would leave and another would come in. So let's go ahead and address a potential elephant in the room, and that's that you are approaching dating in a very mechanistic way. Most people who date, no matter what their situation or condition is, do not Maybe people don't even know that a dating coach, that that's a thing. And most people certainly haven't hired them. And there is something, although it'd be really hard to put a finger on why, but there is something that tends to hit people the wrong way once you subject something that people consider to be sort of a matter of of the heart or something that is just supposed to be done by pixies and fairies. When you subject that to anything that could be clocked on a spreadsheet, anything that is a procedure, anything that is bulk action, what's your response to that? I have two responses. Number one, I was approaching it, again, from the same sense of control. I want to control the outcome. I want to be as attractive as I possibly can. I wasn't trying to fake anything. That's one thing I always believed was wrong. I never presented myself as anything but who I was. I never lied to anyone, ever. It's my number one rule, is complete and total honesty. The second thing is I believe A lot of people are naive that dating is something that happens naturally. Everything we do in the dating process is an attempt to present our best self, even down to what clothes we choose or or what words we say. And so to believe that presenting your best self is not a skill that gets better with practice is naive. So I actually think that more men and women should be a lot more open about the idea of gaining experience and practice and skill with their love life. And I think we would have better relationships, not from the lens of let me manipulate people into liking me, from the lens of let me present the best version of myself that I possibly can. Take me through how that went, because I mean, I have so many questions and I'm sure that people are going to people listening are going to have so many questions because what happens with you in dating is going to be is going to be different from what is happening to a lot of people who are listening. But it's also a very unique set of situations. It's a very unique set of circumstances because you are having to, you aren't doing a lot of the things that a lot of people do when they date. So what was the response of the people that you were that you were having these dates with? What was your success rate like? What did people say? How did you feel? All that stuff. I tracked it on the spreadsheet and it was their response to me, my response to them. Initially, it was extremely awkward. The very first girl that I went on the date with, I ended up three years later finding her again on dating apps. And we went on another date and she became my girlfriend for two years. But the first date between us, very awkward. And it was just because I was nervous. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know how to present myself. And she was the same way. It was the first date she had ever been on too. So we connected a little bit over that. But otherwise, neither one of us knew how to lead. And so it just kind of never went anywhere. Eventually, I got to where my response was almost always, let's say 90% of the time, I'd love to see you again. And it was genuine. Because I would ask, like, when? And they would give me a day and a time. The reason why that was true is because, number one, I I presented myself with complete honesty. And number two, I was intensely curious about them. And I approached it with the spirit of curiosity and the spirit of, I want to understand what you're looking for, how you think about this. 
people love talking about that. So I would have these two-hour conversations with complete strangers in coffee shops. At the end of the conversation, they would have told me the most intimate details of their love life. And I learned a lot really fast. How are you meeting them? It's a two-part question. When you say that you were asking for phone numbers and stuff, I'm trying to imagine if you were in like a mingling sort of environment where you were face-to-face to begin with, or whether these were on dating apps. And then the second part of the question is, did they were they surprised when they met you, or did they know that they were going to meet somebody who can't move? It was both in-person and online. In-person, it was literally... Any woman without a wedding ring, initially, because my goal was just to learn. You would start a little bit of small talk and then ask if you could have their phone number? In the beginning, I sucked at this. I got coaching on this. The very best beginner opener, and all the guys out there, listen up. Hello, my name is John. I find you very attractive, and I just couldn't stop myself from coming over and saying, would you like to grab a cup of coffee sometime? That's it. My 2023 radar says that that might not always be well-received. You didn't have any trouble with that line? I'm not saying it's the best line, but it's the best beginner line. I would get probably about 50-50. And by the way, when a girl doesn't want to give you her number, she says, oh, I have a boyfriend, even when she doesn't. So you typically don't get harsh rejections. At least I didn't. My goal in the beginning was just to do it. I mean, at the time, 50% was pretty good. Eventually, it got up to nearly 100% as I got really, really good at it. And that's less about what you say and more about the energy that she feels from you. Well, I could delve into the nuances of dating for hours and hours, and we will. um, (laughs) Off off the podcast, we will. But we need to keep moving on or this is going to be a a six-hour episode. So you ended up in... Was this the same relationship with with the uh, the woman that we're we're going to call Hummingbird to protect her uh, privacy? No, she was my second girlfriend. My first girlfriend was a stewardess. I won't say which airline. And, and by the way, for anyone listening, I'm fully comfortable sharing my story, but I don't feel like it's fair to identify the woman I dated. Feels like that would be uncool. So I dated her. She was my first girlfriend. And she told me straight up, she w- I was 31, she was 30. She was gorgeous, half black, half Japanese. Very sweet. That's where I lost my virginity. She was an amazing first girlfriend. Exactly what I needed. And about, I don't know, six months into it, it became clear to me, without going into a lot of detail, that she was in love. And she started dropping hints about marriage, which was a shock to me. I never thought that would happen. And that proved my hypothesis that I wasn't unlovable. She really did truly, truly love me. And I finally told her one day, I I didn't feel the same way. And I couldn't continue because I felt guilty knowing she felt one way. And I felt, you know, she was a really, really good friend. She was my girlfriend, but I wasn't in love. And so then Hummingbird came after this. Yeah, that was my nickname for her. We used to joke that she was a hummingbird and she ran into windows. So I'd always tell her, like when she left, instead of bye, it was bye, watch out for windows. She called me a tortoise because I'm kind of slow and I've got a really thick shell and I'm also very wise. So what was that relationship like? How did it differ? She was much younger than me. She was 26. I was at that time 32, 32, 33. 
she was brilliant. Um, she was a doctor. She knew everything about my condition. Um, she was fascinated by me as a biological specimen, mental specimen, everything. And we dated non-exclusively for a few months. She was seeing a few people. I was seeing a few people. And we eventually, after a few months, decided to go exclusive. Fell deeply, deeply in love. And even started talking about getting married. How was your arc progressing during this stage where previously you had learned something about emotion, but you'd learned it in a utilitarian fashion. So was it acquiring a more personal, more intimate, more other people focused sort of a bent to it? It was learning how to become a really great boyfriend in all the possible senses in an authentic, honest way. So it was still a little bit about controlling. It was still about if I'm a really, really good boyfriend, you'll never leave me, which isn't true, by the way. But that was your mentality was that was why you were putting in that effort, yeah, correct? For, for control. control. And I I had never been in love before. And I didn't just fall in love. I was head over heels. Like, I would have died for this woman. She was the first thing I thought about in the morning. She was the last thing I thought about before I went to sleep. So romance goes or love, goes hand in hand with a certain amount of surrender and vulnerability. You can't fully experience those things unless you open up and are vulnerable. And meanwhile, you're trying to be safe, which requires, at least at this point, control. So was there some internal struggle going there because you had to kind of lose yourself and that's the opposite of what you normally do? Yeah, there was a huge amount of struggle. I broke up with her three times during the process of dating her. And it was always through the lens of, I'm not on board with what you're doing. If this is what you want to do. Like, for example, uh, she used to go to festivals around Austin and get like really high from marijuana. We're not talking a little bit. We're talking like smoking for two days straight. And I just wasn't into that. And I, I said that that's what you're going to do. It's cool. But I'm not your guy. I'm never going with you to those things. And she stopped going to festivals. She was a very, very independent woman. And it was a process of me learning to be vulnerable and also me becoming the dominant partner in that relationship that was in control. And I expected her to submit. And that was not an easy thing to do for her. So looking back, do you think that it may be more mature or further down the path way to look at it would have been you do your thing and I'll do my thing because you don't need to be in control or does it still feel like that would have been a point of contention? That's the way I presented it, but that's not what I was feeling. Uh, what I was feeling was, I'm going to tell you this and then you're going to stop. And she wasn't into that. She didn't want to be controlled. And so that led to the breakups. Yeah. But then she would change her mind and come back to me and say, I absolutely love you. If this is that big of a deal for you, then okay. Do you think that that was indeed the real reason from your perspective? Or do you think part of it was what I was saying before, where you had to make yourself vulnerable? There were some things. It took me a long time to tell her. It took me almost a year to tell her she was my second girlfriend. Mm. I was always like really vague about how many girls I dated. She was much more experienced, even at the age of 26. Um, the, the other things, physical vulnerability, like about my disease is not really hard for me. Vulnerability about my emotions 
that was hard for me. Telling her that I loved her for the first time was a very, very, very difficult for me to do. I know that at some point I asked you about you were controlling people so that you could feel safe. I'm imagining you got to a certain point where you realized you could feel safe without controlling people. And you said, no, that the real lesson was that you had to learn that you would never be entirely safe and had to be okay with it. Was there any sort of version of that in this where you kind of had to surrender to some degree or or could have surrendered and didn't to the idea that, you know, substitute safe for not knowing what the other person's going to do? And you began to think those along those lines? Yeah, I told her I loved her before she told me she loved me, even though I thought I was pretty sure she loved me. And I did it through the lens of wanting to live courageously. But I became increasingly emotional, increasingly volatile, not in a dangerous way, uh, but in a sort of, wasn't the normal controlled John that I used to be. Because I was no longer completely in charge of my life or my emotions. She had a big influence on that. And that boss of control was terrifying. And then I'm guessing that everything was happily ever after from that point. You'd learned your lesson and life has been entirely on 100% rosy since. <laughs> Is that correct? Uh, no. When we started talking about getting married, we kind of agreed that we would get married. There were no rings. We agreed that she was going to move in with me. And she went to tell her best friend at a bar in downtown Austin. And she told her friend they were happy. She came outside and she was walking back to her car, which was about a block away. And two guys grabbed her and pulled her into an alleyway and just brutally, brutally raped her. And what did that do to, I mean, obviously it devastated her. What was the, what was the aftermath there for your relationship? She didn't call the cops. I think she had some brain damage from being beaten. She fought like a tiger, but against two grown men, it, it didn't matter. And she went and got back in her car and drove home to see me. She woke me up, touched my arm, and I woke up and I looked at her. And her face was just, her face and her hair were just full of blood. Because I guess they had beaten Croquette against the pavement. It's amazing she could even drive home. She said something terrible happened. I asked her if she wanted to call the cops. She said no. She was afraid it would ruin her career because there's a stigma that once you've been raped, that you were damaged somehow. It's still a very male-dominated field, healthcare. We made it through one day, terrible day. She got cleaned up. We went to bed. We went to sleep. And I woke up with her standing over me again with the phone in her hand calling 911. And she said, there were bombs strapped to the house. Send the bomb squad. And I assume the bomb squad came. Yeah. Did she end up in some sort of treatment? I mean, it sounds like it, it, it broke her. I, I know that you're not with her and that this ended. So that was, was that it? Was that the end right there? No. She had a complete, what they call a psychotic break. Psychotic in the medical sense, not in the your psychotic sense that a lot of people use it. Psychosis is where you're living in a different reality than everyone else. She was seeing things, experiencing things that I was not. No one else was. I don't know. Doctors don't know if it was due to 
the rape, if it was due to brain injury, if it was some sort of hidden schizophrenia that was buried in her that got triggered. But she spent the next six months in a private mental hospital and became a different person. She became convinced that I was hunting down people she loved and murdering them. And then when those people then presented themselves to her and said, I'm still alive, she would say, it's, it's not you, you're a copy. So I stayed with her through all of this and went on for about six months after that. So about a year from the incident to the end of the relationship, she eventually started to recover. She eventually started to realize more about what was real and what wasn't. She was unable to work. She had intense anxiety around any man. And I was completely powerless to help her. There was nothing I could do. And that powerlessness and to see someone I loved with all of my heart breaking and falling to pieces and being able to do nothing about it, that broke me. So that concludes the next to last episode of The Impossible Man. You know the score by now. If you want to get in touch, John is at John Morrow, J-O-N-M-O-R-R-O-W. I am not on any social media, but you can find me on my website at johnnybtruant.com, J-O-H-N-N-Y-B-T-R-U-A-N-T. If you go ahead and sign up for my website, you'll be kept in the loop and you can follow progress of the book and everything else. So thank you for listening and we will continue with the final episode of The Impossible Man.